0: I'm going to start off with a lachaim to all of you, Lakhaim Livracha. My Kaddish Baruch who should help us that this new week should come for all of us Latova Balivracha. It should bring us blessing, it should bring us success, it should bring us happiness and Yeshua Tashem Keheref Ayin. Even though in a natural or normative sense we don't see how things can shift or change in a very speedy way. Nonetheless, everything's in the hands of Hashem and things can change really in the blink of an eye it's almost a year ago that things changed but not in a positive way and it changed very very quickly as sages tell us that goodness and positivity unfold with greater alacrity so L'chaim to all of you L'chaim, L'chaim Charles and Mercedes thank you again for a beautiful Avdala. and L'chaim to all of you on Zoom and everybody out there on Facebook L'chaim so as we move into a new week and we look ahead, we try not to look behind too often, except to learn a lesson. We've passed Rosh Hashanah Le'ilah Ilanot, and the next big stop is Purim. And Purim is a very, very big and joyous day. <laughs> it was also the last time that we were together as a community, and we celebrated. Everything seemed distant. We were dressed up like Venetians, but Italy, and the realities that were unfolding there seemed to be more than an ocean away. And it felt like, to us, like something that was happening in, in China maybe, or in Europe. And little did we know that a few days later, really everything came crashing down. What will happen this year, Purim? I don't know. I'm, I'm not a prophet. I'm ever optimistic and hopeful. And as I mentioned, the salvation of Hashem can come in the blink of an eye. But none of us know with certainty whether we will have turned the corner come Purim. And being 30 days before Purim being within the month of this very special holiday we have a sacred responsibility to look forward and to prepare and to ask ourselves what we can do to make this this year's Purim more special. One of the things that I've heard talked about even by some people who perhaps I would say abuse the title Rabbi is making Kriya Tamagillah on Zoom. So I'll be talking about this But let me just say this. Halakha, for us, is not a cute or sweet or nostalgic thing. For us, Halakha defines reality. And whilst Judaism could and should feel good, and it feels very good to see all of your faces. I wish more of you would (laughs) reveal your faces. It's nice to see everybody's faces. It's nice to see people smiling. It's nice to see people participating during this period of provincial lockdown and separation. And it's good to be able to see each other. There's no halachic obligation or responsibility for you to participate. And if you decide to check out or think this is boring, okay, that's actually perfectly fine. If you're not having a good time, there's no reason for you to remain on. This is about feeling good. But halacha isn't. That is to say, when we talk about things from a halachic perspective, whether it feels good or not, is irrelevant. The question for us is, does it satisfy the halachic requirement? It's not if, how do you feel about the matzah? It's, is the matzah kosher matzah? It's not how you feel about the mezuzah or the tefillin. And frankly, it's not how we feel about the Megillah experience. Listening to the Megillah is a halachic responsibility, a mandate for each and every one of us. It's a mandate, it's a halacha that can't be fulfilled via Zoom or any other form of electronic hookup. Because you have to hear the Megillah from somebody who's reading from a kosher Megillah in a voice that isn't electronically simulated or translated into electronic impulses, even if it sounds exactly like the voice of the person who's reading the Megillah, you have to hear the Megillah from the person who's reading the Megillah, and we're talking about actual audibility. So, otherwise, you simply can't fulfill the mitzvah. What will we do on Purim? Uh, The answer, of course, is I don't know. Certainly, we will do the best we can. If it means dispatching balikriya, to stand in outside or outdoor public places, or to gather five or ten people together at a time, as per whatever the law permits, we will do whatever is possible to help everybody hear the Megillah and fulfill the mitzvahs of Purim. So I want to tell two little stories tonight. They're stories about halacha and the stories that help us understand and appreciate the realities that are dictated by the P'sak Halacha, by the ruling of Halacha, which is based on the immutable principles of Torah Teino HaKadoshah, of our holy and eternal Torah, as it's been passed down generation after generation, ultimately back to Moshe at Sinai. So the first story, is a story that takes place somewhere in the 1840s. There was a town in Russia or Ukraine called Usia. I didn't have a chance to Google it, but I'm sure it's a it's a hamlet or a town. I don't know how big it is or if it actually shows up on a map today. Unfortunately, many Ukrainian or white Russian towns no longer exist because the population was sometimes 85 to 95 percent Jewish. And before the cattle cars, and before the concentration camps. The Nazis simply wiped entire townlets off the map, bringing all of its inhabitants to an open grave and literally shooting them one by one. So whether or not this town still exists, I don't know. But in the mid 19th century, it was a very vibrant town and it was surrounded by a string of smaller towns or villages. At that time, there was a pious scholarly individual whose name was Rabbi Aaron Yafo. Rabbi Yafi was the Shochet. He was the Shochet in the town of Ussia, and he would travel through the little hamlets. Some of these were just four or five houses together around farm area where Jewish families lived, and he would provide them with kosher poultry and meat. The Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe of Lubavitch, made a point of traveling throughout the Russian-Ukrainian, and uh, and beyond countryside, because he wanted to be able to engage with the Chassidim and uplift them. Some of them had very dreary and difficult lives. And so the word comes that the Rebbe himself is going to be coming to this town called Usia. The, the, the Rebbe had to eat. And so the Shochet, whose name is of Aaron Yafi, comes to the Tzemach tzedek and he shows him his chalif, he shows him his knife, that the Tzemach tzedek himself should be satisfied with the chalaf because the knife that the Shochet uses is really what's the most important ingredient in the Shrita. The Tzemach himself carefully looked over the knife and he was satisfied. And the Shochet went to slaughter a number of chickens and he prepared poultry so that the Tzemach would have what to eat during his tenure in this town. And people came from all around. People came to see the devil. And he was set up in one of the, the, the townspeople's homes and there the Tzemach saw hundreds, maybe even thousands of people over the course of what seemed to be a week or two. Things were orderly, Tzemach tzaddik had his daily schedule of Torah study and his responsa that he would write, but a significant portion of his time was spent meeting and greeting people with a variety of questions. And the Shochet himself, of course, also wanted an opportunity for yichidus to be able to see the Rebbe. When he came, that Tzemach asked him, what is your question? So Rab Aaron Yaffe said, his question was a Torah question, something that had bothered him since his youth. He said, there are things in halacha which became accepted, some of them in the 15th century, some in the 16th century, some in the 17th century. For example, it could be with regard to shechita, but there are many other things, different details of halacha, what we would call in halachic jargon, chumrus, certain stringencies that became accepted across the Jewish world. And in today's day and age, to do something in a manner that wouldn't be in keeping with these chumrus would, for example, in the laws of Shechita, be considered not kosher. So Reb said, but there were Jews who lived, great Jews, prominent Jews, righteous Jews, who lived in the 8th century, 9th century, great rishonim. Who didn't follow these chumras? who didn't follow these stringencies so what does that mean he said did they eat food that we would consider not kosher today the Tzamaq Tzedek responded and he said you need to understand the deeper meaning of the word muter and oser muter means permissible oser means prohibited but as the al Rebbe explains in Tanya these two words which are very literal in telling something that he may or may not do something at its origin the words come from the etymology meaning tied or untied and he explained that certain things can be elevated and used for a holy purpose and that's the meaning of mutter that's the meaning of it being untied meaning it isn't tethered it isn't chained If we will use these material things properly, we can actually elevate them. And thereby, we elevate the world in which we live. Things which are usr, things which are prohibited or proscribed, essentially are tied. Tied in a manner that no matter what you try to do, you can't unchain it. It remains tethered. And it can't, proverbially speaking, be lifted or elevated. And the Tzemach Tzedek said this, there was a time, he said in the past, where loftier souls walked the face of the earth, souls who were empowered more so than us. And they were actually able to elevate certain things which today is beyond our purview. And so the halacha at the time permitted it. But as time went on and the souls became poorer or dimmer, we no longer had the wherewithal or ability to elevate certain things. And that, said the Tzamech Tzedek, is why these stringencies were introduced. That's the deeper meaning of the notion of modern day Chumras that once it becomes accepted by Klal Yisrael, it actually would be proscribed or prohibited, meaning tied or tethered. And so in today's day and age, we wouldn't be able to elevate or lift it. Today, instead of us elevating that, it would in turn chain, shackle, and limit us. So that's one little story that helps us understand the deeper meaning or the spiritual motif of halacha, what's permissible and what isn't. It's not just a technicality, it actually translates into the spiritual pursuit of being closer to Hashem in a very real, almost tangible, certainly understandable way. And the second story that I wanted to share with you is also a story of the Tzernach This is a, a fascinating story about the Torah not being in the heavens. It's a famous discussion, a narrative in the Gemara, in which the sages were having a dispute about the permissibility of a certain item with regards to ritual purity or impurity. And one sage, whose name was Rabbi Eliezer, he vociferously and very, very strongly disagreed with the Chachamim, with the vast majority of sages. And he maintained that even in the yeshiva Shomailah, even in heaven, they understood the halacha to be his way. He was a person who had prowess that is beyond the purview of our imagination or our orbit of experience. And he was able to demonstrate a number of details, things, phenomena that we can't possibly imagine to control. And he did this to indicate that he was right. And the Chachamim said, It's very impressive. You're a great tzaddik, But it's not the halacha. Torah Loba Shemayim. The Torah is not in the heavens. The halacha gets ruled here on earth by people of flesh and blood who have a brain or a mind that's able to grasp and understand things. And they toil to try to understand the halacha with integrity, with sincerity, with holiness and purity, but ultimately in a pragmatic way. And when the halacha is ruled, that Becomes reality. So, this is the story that illustrates this notion of Torah Loba Shema and I think will help us appreciate the notion of we need to follow the halacha, the halacha as it's ruled here in this world. So, the Tzamach came to what was the placing of a cornerstone in the new base the Shalabavitch, and the many, many people had come together. It was an outdoor event. You know, turning the sod, placing the cornerstone. And long tables were brought, and there would be, it seemed, a fabrengion of sorts, outdoors. The Tzemach Tzedek asked the Hasidim, Would you like to hear a teaching of Chassidus, a Maimer? Or would you prefer a story? <laughs> when I asked my children at the table today, before I could continue, they blurted out a story. Well, that's exactly what the Hasidim said. They wanted to hear a story. So the tzaddik tzaddik began to tell the following story about a Yid whose name was Yaakov. This Yaakov was a chassid of the famous Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhene, who the Tzedek used to refer to as the Helik Ruzhiner, the Holy Ruzhiner. And the story was that there was a, a Jewish businessman who, I guess, rented an entire area of infrastructure, which included a factory, It included a forest. It included a number of of inns. And he rented this from what was called then in Russian or Polish, the Poretz, the local squire or Duke. And he would pay him whatever it was for the year. And then he would sublet the details out, the inn, the mill, the factory, the field. And in this way, he would be able to turn a profit. The Duke didn't want to deal with the details. And he was essentially kind of like what you would call subletting the various details, the various parts of the infrastructure so that he could make a living. This Yaakov was a hapless fellow and he rented a small inn. But somehow he could never make a profit. He really had what they call no mazel. The landlord, a fellow Jew with the same name Yaakov, came to him and said, you have to pay up. He said, I don't have the money yet. And he was delaying him week after week after week. And finally he said, if you're not going to pay up, I'm going to have to evict you. I have bills to pay. I pay the bills when you pay your bills. I can't continue this way. The hapless fellow ran to his Rebbe, Rabbi Saul of Ruzhn, and he said, I'm going to get evicted. Pray for me. (laughs) Do something. Rabbi Saul of Ruzhn sent for this individual, this landowner. And he said to him, look, He's a hapless fellow. He's got no mazel. He's trying. Tzedakah is a big mitzvah. Just forgive, forgive the loan, forgive the, 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 the debt, and surely Hashem will bless you. It'll work out. He wasn't so quick to do this, but the Bissol Ruziner asks, and he asked so sincerely, and he explained the idea of tzedakah, so he relented, and he even said that he would better the terms of the agreement. He forgave the debt. And he said, You pay less and you have a longer amount of time to pay. The subletter or renter was happy with this agreement and they parted ways. And here he comes a few months later to collect the lower amount of rent. And the hapless fellow, he's got no muzzle. One bad turn after the other, he spent money that didn't bring him back a profit and he couldn't pay the bills. The landlord was really upset. He said, you know, you played this game last time. I made your conditions better. I gave you more time, less rent. And here you are, again, not paying your bills. I'm going to have to serve you with an eviction notice. The chassid again ran to Rabbi of And he cried that he was being evicted. And it wasn't his fault. And he was trying. And he just seemed to have no muzzle. And Rabbi of again sent for the landlord. And again he spoke to him. And again, he talked about the mitzvah of tzedakah and how important it was to help a fellow Yid. And he said, this person didn't have mazel. He means well. He's trying hard. You have to, you know, sometimes just overlook things. After all, Parnassah comes from Hashem. He was even more reticent this time around. But finally, he relented. After all, Rabbi Saul Ruzhin was asking. And fine. He forgave the loan. He lowered the rent. And he said, but this is it. A few months went by. And it was the same story all over again. The landlord said, listen, I saw this movie already. We're not doing this again. We're done. We're done. I'm going to evict you, and I have to evict you, he said. And I have to get somebody who can pay the bills. I'm sorry I have no mazel. It can't be my problem. The chassid ran to the bisol of Ruzhn and complained again. The bisol of sent messages, but this time the landlord said, Rebbe, with all due respect, I'm in business to make a profit, I also have bills to pay, I have a family to provide for, I can't do this anymore. I'm sorry, I can't. Sadly, this hapless fellow was evicted. And life went on. We don't really know what happened to him, but the tzemach said, this is the story. When this Yaakov, the landlord, eventually passed away, he came before the heavenly tribunal. And as they say, they show you a movie of your life, whatever that means. Detail after detail, he was a fine person, he was a pious individual, he was sensitive, compassionate, loving, he cared for his family, for his community. But at some point, this episode came up. And whilst he got a lot of credit for previously forgiving the debt, here it was painful to see a family with small children being evicted by a fellow Jew. The Bezdin Neshomailah, whoever occupies the, the, the bench, as they say, looked at this in a very unfavorable way. And a Neshama, named Yaakov, protested. He said, it's not fair. You can't judge me. You are Malachim, you're angels. You don't know what life is like in the real world. You've never paid a bill in your life. You don't know what the pressure of running a business is like. You don't know what it's like not to be able to come up to pay your own debts and responsibilities because somebody else defaults on you. I'm sorry, he said. I gave in twice. That's not fair. I shouldn't be judged harshly. If that guy had no mazel, he had no right to pass it on to me. Twice I relented. I can't be faulted for not giving in a third time. The Bez and Shomila convened and they said the man has a point. And so they appointed two neshamas, not malachim, to sit in judgment over this case. Who were the two neshamas? It was the greatest Sephardic rabbi and the greatest Ashkenazic rabbi of a previous century. The Tur, which is the forerunner of the Shulchan Aruch, has two major commentaries on it. The Bet Yosef is on one side of every page and Rabbi Yola the rabbi of Krakow, wrote the Bayat Hadash. He's on the other side of every page of the Tur. So they brought the Beit Chadash and they brought the Bet Yosef and these Neshamas sat in judgment. They too could not favorably view a Jew who had evicted a fellow Jew and thrown a family with children out onto the street. Again, the neshama Yaakov protested. He said, these are great rabbis. And yes, they were Neshamot. They once did live in the real world. But they left the real world decades, maybe more than 150 years ago. They don't understand. They've long forgotten the details, the travails, the pressures. They don't know what it's like. To them, it's a distant memory. This has to be ruled by sages, by rabbis who are living this, who know what money means, who know what debt means, who know the difficulties of life. The Bach and the Bet, and the Bet Yosef conferred. And they said that Samach they continued telling the story. He's right. The Tzemach then raised his eyes. He looked at the Chassidim, hundreds of Chassidim that surrounded him. And he said, No? So what do you say? The Chassidim didn't say anything. The Tzemach said, I say he's right. He couldn't, more could not have been expected. It was unfair to expect him to continue to shoulder that burden and he should be allowed to proceed to his heavenly reward it's unfair to judge a person in that kind of situation. And then the Tzemach turned around to all the Chassidim. And he said, And what do you say? Do you believe? He said in Yiddish, is Do you believe he's right? And the people looked at the Tzemach and the Tzemach said three times, gerecht, gerecht, gerecht. Right. He's right. Yes. He's right and the crowd roared Gerecht, Gerecht, Gerecht. Everybody present understood that Tzemach Tzedek had just paskent a halacha for an neshama in heaven right here on planet earth. And This, my dear friends, is the meaning of halacha. And this is the meaning of a halacha paskent. Obviously, ordinary rabbis are not privy to what happens in higher realms. And they will never have this kind of experience. But having said that, The way the halacha is ruled is real. It makes an actual difference. And when it comes to mitzvahs, we have to do mitzvahs the right way, the halachic way. So, L'chaim to you all. We will try to arrange halachic Megillah readings for everybody. We'll do something on Zoom (laughs) and Facebook or YouTube, or who knows, maybe Hashem will grace us with wonderful salvation, and maybe Purim will be celebrated the way we always did. And maybe, just maybe, we'll have the good fortune of welcoming Mashiach before Purim so that we can celebrate a Purim like never before, a Purim in Yerushalayim, in the third base of Mikdash, together with Mashiach, B'mheira, will be Amenu Amen. Thanks for joining. L'chaim to you all. L'chaim, Shavu'atov Tov, and Kol Tov. everybody. It's great to see you all. I look forward to being in touch. Stay tuned. There'll be a lot of exciting classes this week. <laughs> Hashem. Kol tov. Kol tov.